Hey, hey, everyone. So today, kind of a funny story. I was going to start today with uh, Jacques Derrida's Of Grammatology, which was his first, um, I guess one of his first big books. But then I realized I can't really talk about this without talking about Jean-Jacques Rousseau's On the Origin of Languages, or On the Origin of Language. So I'm just going to do that one. And then next week, stay tuned because I'm going to start Derrida's Of Grammatology, which I assume some people are going to be into. But for now, I'm going to do on the origin of language, which should be pretty short, it's a short essay, but it's necessary for of grammatology. Uh, now, before jumping into that, if you want to follow me, you can do that on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. If you want to help me out, you know, share, like, subscribe, tell your friends. I don't know. Uh, I've been told I have a soothing voice. I might be able to help uh, a restless friend of yours sleep at night if they want a somewhat soothing voiced white guy to tell them about this stuff. Uh, uh, what else? If you're listening to this in YouTube, you can find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads because that's annoying uh, and vice versa. If you want to watch this on YouTube where you can sometimes find videos of me, if for some reason you're into that, uh, if not totally cool, leave five stars on a podcast platform. That would be very cool, but okay. I don't want to waste any more of your time. Now this, this, I don't like this essay. <laughs> I just want to say that this essay bothers me. It's not clear. Uh, it's not concise. Rousseau's all over the place. Every page is, is a chapter. It's it's aphoristic without being, without having the kind of methodical presentation that someone like Nietzsche has in their aphoristic style. So I'm just going to go through it and we're, we're going to get through this. We can get through this together. So he starts out by saying that language emerged when humans began to view other human beings as sentient and therefore as being able to reciprocate expression. And so when people began to recognize that other humans could acknowledge them, then that opened the door for new possibilities for communication. And this new communication is essentially what separated humans from animals and separated humans from other humans. So if people developed a language of their own among a certain community, it could then be a point of comparison that could exclude other humans. So there was that kind of comparison. But language is not reducible to speech. Like we know that animals have language. They speak with, uh, they communicate with their gestures, with other kind of extrasensory communications in some cases, or, or even sensory ones. Um, but they're also just like signs. There are signs like Egyptian hieroglyphics don't use words per se all the time. They use images to convey meaning, to convey, to convey language. And these signs appeal much more to the eye than they do to the ear. And which pretty much attests to the fact that historically language has been more reserved for the eye than the ear, than, than speaking. Which, of course, is something that Derrida is going to pick up on in his consideration of the way that uh, essentially the history of philosophy from Plato till Heidegger was essentially concerned with language as it is spoken and giving that a privileged place. So we see in Rousseau that that's not the case. Like language assumes all these kinds of different forms. But in his own way, Rousseau reifies a kind of appreciation or puts forward an appreciation of sound oversight, where he says that only the most 
complicated and the most expressive emotions can be communicated through sound, not through sight. And he gives the example of someone suffering on the ground. And I'm just imagining, for some reason, I'm imagining that scene in Apocalypse Now when uh, one cavalry has gone through and decimated that small uh, Vietnamese village in, in all the horror of that scene. And there's that one Vietnamese soldier who's just bleeding out and the guy doesn't, the commander dude doesn't even give him water. Like it's just, it's heart-wrenching. Um, but for some reason, Rousseau says that that experience of suffering that we see isn't enough to instill a strong emotional response in us. Instead, what can instill a strong emotional response or produce a strong emotional response is hearing that person's story, having them recount it. So in his words, pantomime without discourse will leave you nearly tranquil, whereas discourse without gestures will wring tears from you, which I just don't buy. I don't, I don't, I just, I hate that. I just hate that. Like how many horrifying pictures have we seen from, from Vietnam to, you know, the, uh, World War II to Abu Ghraib, these images that say a lot more than words can. But anyways, maybe I'm just, I just don't understand Rousseau, but Anyways, so speaking opens us up to possibilities that are foreclosed by gestures, foreclosed by physical contact, where he says that if humans only had physical needs, then we wouldn't have developed language. Language allows us to satisfy needs that humans have beyond their physical needs, beyond having to eat, beyond having to reproduce, beyond having to drink. Because if we only lived to satisfy the physical wants, then we would just be stagnant. We wouldn't allow for development or change. We would only be immediately satisfying our bodies. So he insists that the first gestures, the first kind of communications that, that we see in line with animals, the first kind of language used by animals and humans, was motivated by need. So if we had to, uh, in the case of like animals making some kind of sign to tell the fellow animals of a predator, we don't really call that language in the complicated advanced sense that he's discussing here. It was just something more bare bones basic to keep them from dying. Whereas the first words, that is language as speech, was motivated by passion. And he's saying this to kind of disrupt the idea, the kind of rational idea that we developed a language to because we began to be more rational, that we developed language to better understand the world. Rousseau says no. And, and this, I certainly agree with. I find this super interesting. He recognizes that it was emotion that spurred on language. And the first uses of language was, were a way to express feelings, not, not rationality. And he says it wasn't the geometers that developed language. It was, it was the poets which would explain why like figurative language was the first language used. And this, the first languages uh, would have resembled singing in that case, because they would have been onomatopoeic, onomatopoeic, and was essentially representative. So the first words used would have resembled sounds heard in the world. They would have just mirrored that world. And I don't know how he goes from that to saying that it was a matter of passion, because to me, it just seems like a mirroring of nature 
has less to do with passion than it does with curiosity. But anyways, it was only with time where language began to develop kind of regular uh, schemas that it could actually uh, set itself down to perform this thing called rationality. And it became a way to communicate that was abstracted from the world. It wasn't just tethered to it in the form of gestures or in the form of these onomatopoeic kind of reproductions of the world. So we have these first steps, we have this kind of immediate gestural response to the world, then we have language with these kind of melodic singing verses, and then we have the taxonomization in the form of like written language with like the alphabet. And we have these three uh, phases, and this is something that Derrida picks up on as well, so keep that in mind. In writing, this final stage here, Rousseau begins to see that there's a problem, or we are headed in a negative direction when we pay too much attention to a writing, because writing is homogenous for Rousseau, whereas speech, what happens in the, sec the second phase, this kind of melodic recreating of the world with language, communicating passions, emotion, is open up to possibilities. Like for him, if you have words written on a page, those words are going to look the same to everybody. But if you had different, let's take English as an example, uh, a person who speaks English from Ireland versus Australia versus, you know, the Southern United States, speak the words on the page, it would all come out differently, even though the words on the page, the written word are the same. So he sees a kind of homogenization, a kind of leveling out of language in its written form. And he draws a kind of mirror comparison with the development of human civilization broadly, where he traces three broad developments, like the three he just drew here, between the gestural kind of uh, reaction to the world, to the mimicking of the world with these the basic speech, and then the writing of the world. He correlates that with hunting which is, you know, the immediate response to the world for survival. Herding, which implies some kind of mastery over the world, a kind of uh, engagement with it that, that implies dominion. And then finally, tilling, tilling of the soil, carving out the world. And this is something that Deleuze, uh, Deleuze and Guattari pick up on when they talk about the despotic regime and, um, and writing where the grapheme was something that was used to kind of code the world and was used to consolidate the despot's rule. But anyways, that's not, that's not important. And then he gives this really funny explanation about the first kind of uses of language or how it kind of emerged. And he describes the way that people who didn't have easy access to water, who weren't living near a, a you know, watery mass, a freshwater mass, how they would have to dig wells and that was only made possible by people who had language because you needed to cooperate. And that level of cooperation would only have been possible amongst people with language beyond um, simple gestures. But then he says that it was around wells, like physically around wells, that we saw the first rendezvous of the two sexes because girls fetched water for the household and boys for the herd. And it was a, that's how the sexes were formed. But, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, weren't the sexes engaging before then? I mean, how did these people come to live if the sexes weren't a thing before then? 
But he qualifies it, clarifies. He says, before that time, there were families, but there were no nations. There were domestic languages, but there were no popular ones. There, were, there was marriage, but there was no love at all. So there was just a kind of bare, unemotional connection between the sexes here. Not a deep, what did I, a kind of bare, animalistic one between the sexes. Not a deep, emotional one. As he's saying, the well, <laughs> the well fostered. But I don't know. He could be right. I have no idea. I've, I wasn't there. And so he concedes in a kind of relativistic way that different people in different climates developed language differently. And this is one of his key points that he's not... It's difficult to know what the point is of this text. He's just all over the place. But different people in different climates developed language languages differently. And he says that those in colder climates first expressed language through need. But he said earlier that all people developed language through passion and it was gestures through need. So I've, I don't know what the, what he's on about. Uh, but he says the first people in, in cold climates, the first expressed language through need because they had no time for passion. You know, they were the only time they would get sun uh, was just a few, maybe a couple months of the year. The rest of the time they had to be working because the the earth wasn't just giving them the kind of resources they needed. Whereas people in warmer climates could have they had more leisure time to do things they liked and so language developed in response to the passions which i guess is a qualification of his previous statement but he doesn't say that I, it's just strange and so he equates these kind of first spoken languages or says that they have a kind of melodic function they, they melodically mirror like maybe like bird songs that is, they don't have a very rigid structure. When he's saying melody here, he's saying that they follow their own kind of path. They aren't like necessarily uh, taxonomizable, as opposed to harmonization that he says comes to be with the rigidification of language through like writing, for example, when, when codes become structured within language. So he sketches this in another way. He, he, he privileges music to painting. And he says that painting and colors represent a kind of harmonization. And the reason he says that is because painting is something that appeals to the eye. And what that means is that the painting is interacting with light or light is refracting from it and hitting the eye. So all colors to all people are going to appear to them in the same way, which is obviously a little bit of an outdated idea, but that's what we have. Whereas for him, sounds were produced by a person who, if they said it to somebody else and they repeated it, would obscure it. Whereas if you took a picture uh, from someone and gave it to someone else, you'd still have the same picture. Sounds were valuable. Sound, even when going from like here to whoever's listening right now, chances are what I'm telling you isn't communicated 100% correctly because, you know, it's never communicated the way it was fully meant to. And so there's something always lost, something always kind of missing in language, the spoken word of language that Rousseau likes. It excites him. And so if sound loses its melodic function and becomes more harmonic, he says that it will never or it will have no more effect on us. 
So he essentially concludes by saying, highlighting how character, custom, and interests of a people influence their language. So there isn't a kind of universal language that doesn't exist. And we, you know, we see attempts from Chomsky to whomever, I don't know, Jordan Peterson, like to claim as though there are these universals within language, as though language doesn't change every five seconds. But anyways, that's more or less it. Tune in next week because I'm going to start of grammatology, which will probably be probably be a two episode thing, maybe three. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, if I did anything wrong, if I mischaracterized Rousseau, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, and yeah, I'll catch you next time. Take care.